Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It is good to be home from my various adventures in undisclosed European locations, um, and I am I am back at home, and we are going to get the party started. Uh, I have uh, one of my favorite people here is a uh, um, uh, past guest, but it's been a long time, and it's the first time I believe solo on here. Yep. Uh, Greg Lukianoff is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, aka Fire. Um, he's a he's basically he when the ACLU dropped the ball about defending free speech, he picked it up and ran with it. Um, he has uh, he wrote the 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 Coddling American Mind with uh, Jonathan Haidt, and he's got a brand new book out uh, with his co-author uh, Ricky Schlott which has a forward by aforementioned Jonathan Knight, uh, the canceling of the American mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all. But there is a solution. Uh, Greg, welcome back to The Remnant. That's great to be here. Um, so we were, ta- we were chatting a little bit in the figurative green room, as it were, um, about how, like, this is, this is a tale as not quite as old as time, but as old as uh, book publishing of, how the gods can sometimes just screw you uh, with news events, right? Uh, I remember when Byron York had worked for years on a book and it came out the week the Pope died, oh. you know, and um, uh, and this just happens to people, you know? I mean, and I spent years working on uh, on um, uh, Suicide West and- Great book, by the way. Thank you very much. And my first interview on Fox, I had to explain in three minutes or less what it had to do how it related to the latest Kanye West story. <laughs> so uh, this is no way to run a serious country, but it is the country we've been stuck with. Yeah. Um, so why don't we start with my first and favorite question for book authors. What's your book about? Sure. Yeah, no, it's uh, we, we've tried to get across three things. One, um, we use a tremendous amount of data and examples. We're just, first of all, we're just trying to prove cancel culture is not just real. It's happening on a historic scale that they're going to be studying in 100 years. Um, And I say this as a First Amendment lawyer with a particular interest in censorship history. 
And there are mass censorship incidents all throughout American history where, where lots of people get in trouble at the same time, usually. But they're almost always during national security crises and this kind of stuff. Right. Um, cancel culture has none of this. And we define cancel culture as being the uptick in campaigns to get people fired, deplatformed, punished uh, for speech that would be protected under the First Amendment. Now, be, we explain a little more of that in the appendix. We're talking about under uh, sort of public employee law. So it doesn't mean that like any opinion is protected. It means that you have to do sort of a balancing, et cetera. Um, and the culture of fear that resulted from that giant uptick. And we show that, you know, it, 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 it's a bigger number of professors fired than were even during McCarthyism um, and nothing even close. And that was before the law was established, by the way. The law was only established between 57 and 73. And there's been nothing even slightly close to the number of professors getting canned um, due to their speech that's been happening in the last 10 years. The second part, which is actually kind of the most fun part of it in a way, and the one that's probably the most useful for your future arguments on the interwebs, um, is to get people to understand cancel culture as part, as just the meanest part of a dysfunctional way of arguing, that a way of winning arguments without winning arguments. That essentially, um, you can, you can, try to convince people, you can try to persuade them, you can use charts and graphs and and logic, or you can scare them to death that that if they disagree with you, they're going to lose their jobs and their lives are going to be ruined. Um, But we try to situate that in a larger approach um, to, uh, frankly, BS ways to argue. And we we go, we take the reader through the, the kind of techniques that both the right and the left share. So we talk about what we call something called the obstacle course first, which is like standard logical fallacies. The minefield, which are all the kind of like ad hominem type things both right and left do. I mean, like everyone calls everyone grifter, for example, which mm-hmm. is just an accusation of bad faith. But then we get into the efficient rhetorical fortress on the right, which is a very simple system that allows you to dismiss liberals, um, uh, experts, journalists, not that they shouldn't be dismissed sometimes. Um, and for the particularly hard right, anyone who disagrees with Trump. But on the left, um, you have what we call the perfect rhetorical fortress, which is because it developed on in academia, it's just layer after layer of, of, of ways to get out of actually having to address someone's argument, largely based on identity. But it actually turns out if you follow that down the rabbit hole, um, none of that, none of that exercise even mattered. Because if you are, you know, like a, a, a trans person of color, and you have the wrong opinion, then you're especially dismissed as having internalized transphobia, misogyny, racism, whatever. And that's only halfway through the number of ways that they can dismiss you, you know, on the left. And then the final part is to try to start figuring out what the solutions could be. Um, And I want your listeners to be clear here. I am under no illusion. This is an easy fix. I think that you need to do, you, you need to figure out ways to uh, to um, address this problem from parenting to K through 12 to higher ed to corporations everywhere. And the, but the first thing is, is to get, you know, um, academia, for example, um, or K through 12 to even see that there's a problem. And, and the frustrating thing is that they seem constitutionally incapable of admitting that there's a problem on their side. All right. So I want to get to that in a little bit, because I have I have, I've had some epiphanies in the last couple of weeks, but, uh, but let's, let's, why don't you, why don't you sort of explain? So it's funny because I wrote this book, uh, called Tyranny Clichés, which was a terrible title. It sounded like a steroidal, um, uh, style guide. Right. Um, and, um, and the subtitle was how liberals cheat in the war on ideas mm-hmm. and, um, stand by, I think almost everything in the book still, but 
if I had to do it over again, first of all, I'd get a different title. But second of all, I would just do how people cheat in the war of ideas because yeah. the last 10 years has really kind of changed my view about, about the intellectual consistency and good faith of a lot of people on my team, sure. such as it is. I mean, there are plenty of people of good faith and intellectual consistency on my side, as there are on the other side. But man, are they drowned out in the age of social media by other people and Great. the age of cable news. And, um, and so I've, I've become such a committed both sides are in recent years. Um, but uh, we should get back to that uh, in a second. But why don't we work through, like, what do you... Walk me through some of uh, of examples of the kind of, of the minefield, the 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 impenetrable rhetorical fortress. You know, what are some examples of all that so people get a better sense of what what we're getting at here? So, like, so the minefield, for example, can be things like um, you know some uh, minim minimization. You know, like which is a, a a tactic that even when you get people, people might want to sound reasonable by saying. You know, there's just a laughable quote from Adam Gurry um, at one point, uh, the son of the great Martin Gurry, um, saying that he thought um, when he saw the numbers of professors fired in an early iteration of our Scholars Under Fire database, um, when you're talking about, you know, um, 150, I think at that point, um, he said, well, you know, any other problem, it, uh, this is such a small number that any other problem in society uh, would be considered effectively solved if the numbers were that low. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, you could have just admit, you know, nothing about the free the, the history of academic freedom. Um, I started working uh, after 9-11. I actually landed at in Philadelphia at 9, 10 a.m. on 9-11 wow. um, to start working at FIRE. And uh, there were about 17 attempts to get professors fired for speech relating to either the Iraq War or 9-11. That's bad, by the way. Um, and about three of them resulted in professors getting fired. But all three of those firings were, um, two of them actually explicitly exonerated the free speech rights and academic freedom rights of those professors. So Ward Churchill, for example, the guy who said that mm -hmm. the, the people in the World Trade Center had it coming, he was actually fired for gross academic misconduct, which he really did. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's not a, a threat to academic freedom. Uh, Samuel Arian, um, who was originally charged for saying death to Israel in a video from the 1980s, um, he, he became famous due to Bill O'Reilly, was eventually fired for the fact that he had actual ties to um, Islamic terrorism groups, including the Muslim Brotherhood, I believe. And then uh, the third one was someone who devoted a substantial portion of her technical writing class to condemning the Iraq war. And in that case, it's just like, no, you weren't teaching your class, which mm -hmm. is very well established. You, like, you, if, you, if, you, if you're a physics teacher and you devote your class to your opinions on abortion, they can, they can can you because you're not doing your job. So three were fired, none of them actually on standard academic freedom grounds. Now we're talking about almost 200. And you have to go all the way back to McCarthyism to see numbers anywhere near that. And even McCarthyism is, is not even close to 200. Um, even with decades to look into it, you're talking about maybe between 100 and 150. But at the time of McCarthyism, which is 11 years, by the way, and we're only nine and a half years in, into cancel culture, um, the initially when, when they did a research of it, they, they found about 62 or 63 professors, um, fired for communist beliefs. They had, uh, up to about 90 for kind of like beliefs in general and a couple more that they usually, you know, round to around hundred. Um, and when you're talking about 200 professors being fired and worse, by the way, one six of professors. So, so we know this is also an undercount because there's a million different ways to get rid of professors now that nobody will ever hear about at all. 
Um, and and once one in six professors, you know, for, from one of our surveys, said that they've been investigated or threatened with investigation for their speech for for their academic freedom, which is an insane number. Uh, about nine mm-hmm. percent of students say the same thing, which is is completely like it's that there isn't anything you can even vaguely compare this kind of uh, this kind of uh, uh, scale to. Um, so in terms of minimization, so. You know, Adam saying this, that this is, you know, that this is tiny. It's just kind of like, it just shows you don't know anything about the history of academic freedom. Like the, the American Association of University Professors did an entire issue um, uh, on the firing of, of um, Stephen Salida. You know, um, one firing, uh, a bad one, and, and fire was involved in it. But nonetheless, one firing was considered to be a very big deal. And now we are so wildly beyond that. So when you get to the um, uh, when you get to the ad hominem, uh, the, the what we call the minefield, you know, the most common one there, one of the ones is just simply making things up. Um, and this mm-hmm. is something that Jesse Single uh, deals with all the time is people will just make up claims that he's done horrible things in, in real life to trans people right. with, with no justification whatsoever. Uh, but we also talk about the um, accusations of bad faith, um, which is also one of the most common ones which is grifter, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I always love it when people call David French, for example, a grifter. And I'm like, David graduated from Harvard in the mid 90s. Um, he had to work hard to not become an incredibly wealthy lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, he decided he, he decided to go non uh, go nonprofit. But the most useful one so far um, in, in, in the uh, in the tactic that both right and left share is what we call hypocrisy projection. Um, and that is when someone only cares about one side of the political fence getting censored, but then immediately assumes, usually without checking, that everyone else is actually the mm-hmm. hypocrite. And this happens all the time with fire, both from the right and the left, although admittedly more from the left, um, where someone will uh, on, on Twitter, you, you know, be like, uh, we have this case and, and these, uh, these, uh, this professor on the left is getting in trouble. Well, crickets from fire, you know, or crickets right. from the people who signed the Harper's letter. And sometimes they literally will be linking to an article in which we are quoted. Um, <laughs> uh, there was there was one example when someone did this when it's like that thing you're passing around is actually a records request from Fire. Um, <laughs> so so they, they do such minimal research because it can't it it hurts their primitive brains too much to imagine that oh maybe maybe I'm the hypocrite uh, maybe mm-hmm. actually these people are being consistent but they don't bother to check they don't bother they, they don't update their priors. Um, so that so that's hypocrisy projection, and you'll and once you start looking for it, you'll see it all over uh, social media. I get called a grifter a lot, right? You, me, and David get called grifters. Um, I mean, I, I guess that shouldn't surprise me. Yeah, this, dispatch gets called grifting, all this kind of stuff. There is this widespread, well, widespread to the extent that that jackass is sending you emails and tweets and what it, it constitutes a significant sample of something, which I it remains unclear. But there's a bunch of people out there who have internalized this idea that like. I quit Fox News in protest to make money, which is a very strange kind of like thing that, that like, you know, uh, that I cut off the ability to give speeches to right wing groups for the rest of my life uh, to, to enrich myself, that kind of thing. And I agreed. Yeah, just, just naked greed. And so the, the, the problem I have, though, with with your point, which I agree with entirely, is that people hurl around phrases like grifter or conservative ink. You know, yeah. which is something that people on both sides of the divides on the right accuse the other of being part of. Um, but my problem with with 
this is that some people actually are grifters. Sure. Oh, no, no. Right. No, you know, <laughs> and like, and like, and so you get into this thing where you, like whenever I I'll accuse Charlie Kirk, who has like multiple houses and has made millions of dollars bilking old people by convincing them that he's what young people are like. Um, and, uh, or Jerry Falwell Jr., you know, uh, making millions from people convincing them that he's this passionate Christian, except when he's watching his wife have sex with the pool boy. Um, not weird. That, uh, that, uh, that somehow, I have no right to criticize these people or say anything because I'm a grifter too kind of thing. Right. And so there's this thing in Confucianism called the rectification of the names, Mm -hmm. which, uh, which we can come back to in a second. But like I, my, I agree with you descriptively, but part of my problem is, is that like, we still need to be able to use the, some of these words actually have meaning. It's like oftentimes you'll hear, you know, various NGO type groups talk about how, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fire, right? Yeah. Which is true. That's sometimes true. It's also true that just one man, one man is sometimes correct yes. for calling someone a terrorist and the other guy is wrong for calling them a freedom fire. Right. And right. I just think, so like, this is part of the problem is when we get so meta, sometimes you lose sight of the fact that both sides can formulaically argue the same way yeah. without it being, without it, without it making the case that both sides are wrong, which is yeah. one side is actually using the words correctly and the other side isn't. Yeah. Or one individual side is a wrong word for this, we, right? We, we address this actually very early on in the book. Um, and in Coddling of the American Mind, we talk about the three great untruths, um, which is essentially this idea. That's my book with John Hyde that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea there is there are three ideas that are such terrible advice that go so much against both ancient wisdom and modern psychological thinking that if you believe them, you're going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the first three that we talk about is, um, what doesn't kill you, make you weaker, always trust your feelings and life is a battle between good people and evil people. Um, you know, they sound initially maybe somewhat attractive, but when you think about them, they're, they're a road to nowhere. Um, and in this one, we have a fourth grade untruth, which is no bad person has any good opinion. Um, this mm-hmm. kind of very primitive way of arguing. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the things that we point out, you know, it, it is that, there's nothing about being a terrible person that necessarily means you're wrong. For that matter, you can be a grifter and be right about something uh, as well. But sure. and the reason why you got to point this out is because a lot of modern debates, even if it deserves that name, um, a modern, uh, well, a lot of modern cancel culture uh, is about, I can prove you're a bad person. And therefore, mm-hmm. every opinion you have is wrong. Um, right. And, I, you know, I always use the example of, well, actually, I, I use Rousseau a lot. I, I, should, mm-hmm. I can also use Marx. Um, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Karl Marx were awful people. Like they, right. they, they you know, Marx was a horrible racist and anti-Semite. Um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was just an awful person. Um, you know, you know, preached the value of childhood and then gave you know the six kids he had with his mistress, who he wouldn't marry, um, to orphanages. Um, you know, was awful to David Hume, betrayed all his friends, just a, a terrible person. That doesn't mean you can outright. Um, dismiss all of his philosophy. And there are parts of Rousseau that I actually think are, you know, worth arguing. The general will thing, I think is monstrous and horrifying. But it doesn't mean you you, but that's on its own substance. So I am so a couple things on on grifter. One, if it gets used to basically say never listen to this person again, you know, you might be dealing with someone who who is being shady. um, But it doesn't mean that they're always wrong. Two, I, I do bristle at how 
lightly and easily it's used when people know nothing about somebody. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the fact that it will just come up before anyone's done any research. With regard to Charlie Kirk, uh, Charlie Kirk has an interesting role in, in, in the book. Um, Turning Point USA is an organization that FIRE has routinely had to defend on campus because their students get in trouble all the time. And, and I've met a lot of their students. And, and to be fair, a lot of their students are great. And we had a case up at Emerson oh, I, College. I believe that. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. We had a case up at Emerson College where uh, students put up signs um, that said, uh, China kind of sus, which means China's mm-hmm. kind of suspicious with a, mm-hmm. with a flag of China mm-hmm. on it to make it really clear they're talking about the Communist Party. Um, the group itself was largely Asian. Um, and then they got immediately accused of anti-Asian Asian hate speech, you know, for what they were doing when it was very clearly directed at the, at the, at the country and the Communist Party. Um, so we, and we've defended them very proudly. Uh, but the uh, Turning Point USA um, scholar database thing that they do, the professor watch list, um, per, uh, they have, first of all, they have the right to do that, to, mm-hmm. to, to call out professors they don't like. But when it actually gets to what looks more like instructions on how to get this person fired, we have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we think that that's actually something uh, that you, you can't really claim to be, you know, a big proponent of liberalism if you're actually, you know, trying to get professors fired for speech that you don't like, particularly on the thin kind of research they usually do at Turning Point USA. So, yeah, grifters, grifters absolutely do exist. But I do get mad when people, this is, this is a trend that actually really does anger me. People will say this, and even people I like in a lot of other cases. Well, the free speech warriors aren't aren't good on this case. Um, they're total they're total hypocrites on freedom of speech. And I'm like, no, you're describing people who aren't free speech warriors, and nobody actually ever seriously thought they were. You're, if you're talking about Charlie Kirk, if you're talking about Milo Yiannopoulos, those aren't actual free speech people. Those those are people who just are partisan um, to their core. Every time I hear this, I'm like, no, actually, if you look at basically all of us who actually work in the business of First Amendment and freedom of speech, it's a very consistent business. You know, like we largely agree on which cases are and are not not always. Um, But the uh, how it's used to how how the existence of ideologues who just mention free speech sometimes gets used to impugn the entire, you know, working free speech field drives me nuts. Yeah, I mean, this is a point, David makes often is that there are actually very few committed free speech people. Yeah. It's just that anytime there's a big free speech argument, half the country's on one side and half the country's on the other side. And so but whichever side doesn't want the speech banned or punished or whatever, joins the uses the 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 professional free speech people as their sort of avant-garde to, you know, their praetorians to make the arguments for them. Yeah. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So 
So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So let's go back to the academic freedom stuff. Um, I am this is partly devil's advocate kind sure. of stuff, but um, I'm also, my contempt for the the larger social milieus of, of a lot of these elite universities yeah. is, is pretty high these days. And, um, and so this is just first, just on a level setting thing. I also come from a very anti-communist family and anti-communist upbringing. And my, my, my grandfather fought the Bolsheviks, so yeah, I, 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 I usually win that argument. <laughs> I am, uh, I am a, uh, I, I will often make the case that that the let's put it this way: you talk about how this is the worst it's been since the McCarthy period. I oh, I have a feeling I know where you're going, and I, mean, yeah, I think we're actually going to agree on this. But go and, on. and I and I don't want to be like. Um, I don't want to be accused of violating the rules, uh, the the argumento ad minimization thing. Yeah. But if you look in the grand context of American history or world history or Western history, however you want to look at it, the there were some bad things done during the McCarthy period in the United States. Yep. But there are certain people from my sort of background who will say, okay, so you're saying it's the worst since McCarthyism. Well, McCarthyism was actually wildly overblown as a terrible thing. Yep. Um, so why is that such a big deal? It's sort of like, just for whatever reason, it pops into my head. Jesse Jackson used to go around in the, in the nineties in the late eighties saying that, uh, DC statehood is now the number one most important civil rights issue in America. And I always used to say, well, if that's the case, then civil rights is no longer a major problem in the United States. You know, it's like saying, you know, the inability to get good takeout is now the number one nutritional problem in America. Well, then we've solved nutrition as a major problem, right? And yeah. and so, uh, like, explain to me, just as if I'm a total stranger, why it is that, because it's fine to say someone doesn't know anything about academic freedom, history yeah. of academic freedom, but 
these numbers still sound like given any other industry, people getting fired for saying stupid things um, or losing their jobs for saying bad things. And sometimes I don't think what they said is bad. So I'm not trying to make that point. I'm just trying to say that like, like if you were in the PR industry and you said stupid stuff, you could get fired. Why, why, why is the benchmark of McCarthyism such an argument settler in your mind? And why is, uh, why should a normal person think this is so important? The, the benchmark of McCarthyism um, is a, a good comparison um, in a number of ways, because generally when you're arguing about people who don't want to imagine that cancel culture is real, um, they'll say that the numbers aren't large and you can point out that it's three times as many professors fire, fired for communism than were fired for communism at, at, at the time and twice as many. Right. They'll, they might even say, look, it's not like it's McCarthyism. You say, whoa, contraire. <laughs> in fact, it's worse than McCarthyism. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, and the one in, you know, and to be clear, we all, we know that the, cause the overall stats in the book, and we, we start from, uh, 2014 and we finish in July of, of, um, of, of last year, cause we have to stop the research at some point. Um, our editors were mad that we were still making those changes at the very last minute, but we wanted to get it, you know, as, as updated as we could and still have it in the book. Um, it's about a thousand professors targeted. Um, about two thirds of them punished in some way, about 200 fired. And we know that's a wild undercount because like I said, one in six professors said they've been investigated and you can't actually, you know, pull the professors who have been fired. There are bias related incident programs. There are literally secret hearings, which sounds conspiratorial, but read Ann Applebaum or, or Laura Kipnis and, and mm-hmm. we are aware of these cases of fire. So, uh, my overall take on McCarthyism, and it's something that there was a, a chapter in the book initially that was a history chapter that was just a little bit too boring um, that we decided to take out. And I'm now actually breaking into pieces and, and doing at my uh, substack called The Eternally Radical Idea. And here's, here's the, the blas- my blasphemous opinion on McCarthyism, but at the same time, it's, it, you know, it has to be said. Um, there were actual spies in the United States. Right. Um, and the evidence against people like Julius Rosenberg is overwhelming. Um, right. David Greenglass uh, confessed. His wife confessed. Harry Gold confessed. We know Klaus Fuchs, um, who uh, was someone who, an immigrant from Germany, but you know, spied on the British. Kim Philby, of course, bragged about it, um, also, also British. Um, and, of course, uh, Ted Hall. You know, we, mm-hmm. we now know Ted Hall was uh, w- was a spy. And what's funny is like people pretend like this is well, it's still a debate um, about whether or not we knew about it. I'm like, no, the, the evidence at the time was very strong. Um, mm-hmm. What they weren't allowed to reveal was that we'd broken the the Soviet code um, and that we actually now had the whole Venona documents, which came out in the, ni- the 90s, which are overwhelming. But then the thing that makes it particularly ridiculous to claim these people were innocent um, was the fact that we now actually have memoirs from their Soviet handlers confirming right. like all sorts of details they couldn't have known otherwise. So it's like, no, I'm sorry. And the question with regards to Ethel, um, that some of the agents who were involved in that didn't think Ethel deserved the electric chair. They didn't mm-hmm. think she deserved to die. Um, it's not that they thought she was innocent. Um, right. Because it's clear also from the record that she knew what her husband was doing. And of course, um, David Greenglass's wife said that Ethel tried to um, tried to actually um, recruit her uh, for the communist. So, and I always make this point: um, Americans and British had helped uh, super Hitler, as we call him, as Russians. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like someone who had a bigger, who, who arguably ar- murdered more people than, than even Hitler. You know, I think they're moral equivalents at minimum. Um, a bomb that could kill everybody on the entire planet. <laughs> That's right. insane, and you'd be freaked out too. 
Right. And uh, so I even read, like, I read the Oppenheimer book, and I definitely mm-hmm. came away. Oppenheimer was innocent. He was, a, he was a patriotic American by the end of it. But the idea that people wouldn't be freaked out by the fact his brother was a communist, his wife used to be a communist, he admitted to being with every communist front group, he admitted to being with right. every communist uh, front group on, on the West Coast. I don't blame people for being freaked out as well. So there was real reason to panic in the early 50s. There, um, and also, higher ed didn't exactly uh, just say, you, you have to go because we don't like communism. A lot of the rationale for firing these professors is you are too doctrinaire, you, uh, you're too stubborn in your, you're, you're too rigid in your belief in this stuff. You're just indoctrinating student, students, and therefore we can, uh, we can ask you to go. Like, you're ideologues, not right. teachers. Um, so that's a way of saying, a way to say that kind of like the current situation is crazier than um, McCarthyism because there isn't a national security threat. We, we didn't just enter a period. We, there's no allegation that any of these people might actually be security risks at all. Right. Um, and this comes out in the data, by the way. If you, there was a poll um, uh, conducted in that massive study, that, and the number of professors who said that they were self-censoring because of the, because of the Red Scare was 9%. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, one out of 10 is bad. Yeah. One out of 10 professors saying they're self-censoring is bad. We did the poll uh, more recently, um, and the ones who say they're self-censoring, like in their papers, it, it's several times that. The ones who are saying they're censoring overall um, uh, are, was about 90%. It's not a perfect yeah. comparison given the questions were given. But you know, by every standard, pe- people are more afraid of speaking their mouths today, speaking their minds today than they were during McCarthyism. And by the way, this is also happening when there's essentially no viewpoint diversity in a lot of uh, a lot of higher ed, particularly elite higher ed. So, you know, by a lot of measures, it's decidedly worse today. Um, and it's and, and it doesn't follow the normal like it, it, it's going to it really is kind of alone in history as this very strange movement where there's not some massive na- national security security crisis and professors are, are just uh, getting fired for being not ideologically pure. Yeah. Okay. So again, I, I do want to move on to this, but I just, it's something I kind of just want to tease out from you because I can just imagine relatives of mine asking me these questions. So I get the benchmark. I agree with you entirely about you know, yep. the McCarthyism part of it, but I think a lot of normal people think that like universities should just teach people the college equivalent of the three R's, right? So yeah. it's, you know, basic liberal arts education, if it's a liberal arts education, open debate, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, and I think that I think most normal people, if they actually knew the extent of the garbage that is sort of being sort of indoctrinated, you know, the sort of DEI statement, universe of things, which I want to talk about, but um, they would be pretty disgusted. I think the recent revelation of the Israel stuff is, is, a, is, is going to be a watershed moment for a lot of people. Yeah. But again, at the end of the day, like, let's imagine for the sake of argument that, that universities were much more like 1950s universities, you know, mm-hmm. even never mind that William F. Buckley had a huge problem with, with 1950s universities. He wrote yeah. God and Man at Yale, right? To make them famous. But a, a, um, a three to one liberal to, to, to conservative um, balance, as opposed to a, you know, infinity to one <laughs> what, what liberal and conservative meant in 1950 was very different than what it, what, it, what it means today too so yeah. it was like there are a lot of different cross currents there but let's just say that you know like it, universities were much more normal right now and that if you said crazy things on the left or the right mm-hmm. it could cost you your job what is lost in that environment that you know 
that should concern us outside of the yeah. ideal learning environment? Like what, what is the, what are the knock on effects for America, for society? Yeah. What, you know, does it, what is the slippery slope argument? I'm not a big fan of slippery slope arguments, but what is, what is like, other than to say it's unfair to individual people and I'm, I'm always against unfairness to individual people, but yeah. like what, what are the larger stakes involved um, stipulating that all your numbers are right? Well, well, the, um, what well, we did, we, we know that all of our numbers are a minimum, you know, essentially sure. like, the, like the cases that, that, because you don't really learn that, that, that people will point out that there's, you know, 4,000 schools in the country um, are just trying to minimize the issue when it actually turns out about 200 schools educate about half the four year students in the country and about right. um, 600 schools educate about 80%. And wildly disproportionately, the top 10 schools um, create our, forgive the expression, ruling class. And those schools, right. by the way, are the worst when it comes right. to cancel culture, when it comes to, um, and, and they, they lead the pack. I mean, Harvard finished dead last in our campus free speech ranking this year, completely mm -hmm. on its own steam. People are kind of like, oh, that's some kind of like publicity stunt. Like, no, we did not actually expect it to finish dead last. It by uh, student polling and the number of professors who got canceled there. Um, and I definitely you know, would, would urge your readers to actually read the book and, and decide for themselves, uh, because it, the examples that you're talking about, particularly when cancel culture, because we call it cancel culture from the left and the right. Um, but when it comes from the left for professors, the stuff that can get you in trouble is nuts. And mm -hmm. it actually has a very harmful effect to on, on the entire country. Uh, when, when we talk about um, undermining trust uh, in the subtitle, this is what we're getting at. So I use the example of Carol Hooven at Harvard. Um, she's an evolutionary biologist. Um, you know, she did a lot of field work, um, checking out testosterone levels in chimpanzees and, and uh, discovering like when at different times it was higher and all, all fascinating stuff. Her book T is, is, is a beautiful read. Um, and she's a absolutely brilliant scholar. She wrote this book. Um, she went on Fox News to talk about it because um, a lot of other places were, you know, uh, a little nervous about the subject matter. Uh, and she very compassionately says we should be kind to trans people, we should be compassionate towards them, we should use their pronouns. Um, but biological sex is real. Right. And we pretend it's not at our peril. Um, it can have you know, gross harm um, medically, it can also lose a lot of people who could ever otherwise be allies and friends if you try to pretend it's not. And there was immediately a DEI instructor, uh, a, a DEI staffer, you know, who, who, who blew, like blew the whistle on this as being transphobic and horrible um, uh, behind the scenes, I suspect, um, or maybe independently um, students, but a lot of times administrators help these cancel culture movements along. Uh, students, you know, started uh, filing petitions on change.org saying that she needed to go or that she needed to be disciplined. Um, they refused to work her class. Her friends turned on her. The university didn't have her back. Kind of the only person who really did have her back was Steve Pinker, who's mm -hmm. on our um, ad advisory council, who's, who's very good on this stuff. And she eventually felt forced out, you know, and, and that, by the way, that isn't even in our 200 firings because mm -hmm. she just got so depressed that she decided to leave because it seemed like, um, and she couldn't get, you know, TAs to work for her class. Um, and meanwhile, what Harvard should have done was say, no, 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 no. We don't need administrators actually to, saying that there's an orthodoxy here. Um, she has every right to, to say her opinion and that, and that we can't have someone forced out because we're too chicken to say, no, TAs actually have to work her class. Like mm -hmm. they can't, they, they can't just decide what opinions they don't like because that creates an orthodoxy. And so that's bad for Carol, um, individually. But it's worse for society for this reason, 
if you look, it, it, people aren't stupid. And if they look up to what's going on in, at a place like Harvard, and they see that someone at such a you know fancy institution um, got forced out simply for saying biological sex is real. The next time someone comes up and says, you know, from Scientific American, for example, saying, no, biological sex is on a spectrum, not not Mm -hmm. gender, but biological sex, what they currently are trying to argue. No one's going to believe them because they realize, oh, you wouldn't tell us otherwise because last person who tried that lost their career. And it's particularly intense in in, in all of the hot button issues. But like, I, I think there were like, three different articles that were actually making some common sense points, you know, about, um, uh, about clusters of, of young women deciding that they were trans, mm-hmm. uh, r- rapid onset ge- gender dysphoria, um, that was uh, retracted. I think that mm-hmm. was Michael Bailey. There were two other articles, one about how to actually treat gender dysphoria without um, transition. Um, a fascinating article. Uh, that was retracted as being transphobic. So basically, it completely destroys trust in expertise. And it kind of should, because a single professor getting in trouble, you know, uh, for having the wrong opinion, sends the message that uh, everyone has to conform or potentially lose their jobs. And when you're talking about hundreds of examples of this, because again, like, it's more like, you know, 650 when it comes to actual punishment. um, uh, That's, uh, that's going to lead people to not have a world of common fact. Yeah, see, I'm glad I asked. I'm glad I pushed it because I, I, I agree with you. I think that the way the way to look at academia, broadly speaking, particularly elite academia, is that it's it's basically the truth industry. Supposed to be, yeah, right. And I'm a, I'm you know I'm a Hayek guy. I really love Jonathan Rauch's Constitution of Knowledge. Um, yep. And um, yeah, if you didn't like it, then I'm, I'm, I have to go reread it. It's like, what did I miss? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, I love it. I love John. Uh, you know, I remember in Hunt for Red October where there's this, the Russians are getting ready to invade Western Europe and the head of the, I can't remember if it was the prime, you know, the, the head of Russia or just the head of the military, he decides, first thing he's got to do is, is hang some generals for lying in the reports because he needed to know actually the state of readiness of things. And the point was you only need to hang a couple for everyone yeah. to get the message, right? Yeah. And, um, um, and you know, whether it's the trans stuff or a thousand other things, um, truth is its own defense. Yeah. And if you get into this thing where um, it doesn't mean you in interpersonal social life, you don't always have to tell all the truth. And there's such things as white lies and all that kind of stuff. And if someone asks you, does this dress make me look fat? You can say no without like violating liberalism or the First Amendment. Right. But um like when it comes to things, particularly in the sciences, you know, where you let ideology or conformity or all that kind of stuff get in the way, um, the ripple effects of that are incredibly pernicious. And that's where I think this this stuff, that's why I think it matters more than like the, oh, life is difficult for a bunch of pampered people who live right. in ivory towers kind of thing. Not to say that that's a fair way to characterize it, but you get my point. So I, I so uh, let's, you know, I, again, you, we established, I, you have my sympathies for trying to come out with a book in the middle of like the, what may be World War Three. So whatever. We did, we did great though. We were on a lot of the biggest podcasts, including Lex Friedman, you know, we, we, 
for the week, we did about as well as we could. I had a big profile about me, which made me, by the way, incredibly uncomfortable um, in Politico, but nonetheless was good for the book. But yeah, I, I think that um, we did the best under the circumstances, but not an ideal week. <laughs> the, re- the reason I bring it up, and, and this, this podcast is quite good at moving books, so... Uh, but um, buy the book for your friends who are skeptics that cancel culture is even real or matters. Um, there you we go. have a, it may, I keep on saying it makes a great stuff stocking stuff. Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. But those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. So uh, I, I teased this earlier, but I, I've had some epiphanies this week. So I, I've, I've been doing the sort of the, the, the sort of right wing, the sort of conservative critique of language policing for a long time, yeah. you know, sort of the John Leo tradition of conservative stuff, the stuff that you've done a lot of that, 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 that I take that I've always sort of had fun with because some of it is so stupid and yeah. so silly that it's kind of fun to play with. And it's, it's one of those areas of writing for me that has always been enjoyable because the stakes seem so low in a certain way to, and yeah. mockery is sometimes the best way to approach all this stuff. But I got to say, like, I'm now I'm working through my anger on some of this because it seems to it seems to me not unreasonable to say that if you've spent 10 years or whatever it's been in in some DEI office or some other you know administrative position in a university talking about how words are violence how uh using the wrong pronoun is violence and that Use, I was just going through the, what was it the the Brandeis list of offensive terms. You're not even you. They they try to get rid of the word trigger because trigger was sort of either related to firearms or it it, it threatened immediate harm that put made people nervous. Trigger could be triggering was the argument, right? And so it seems to me that that if you spend a lot of time making those kinds of arguments and developing whole seminars with reading materials based on these kinds of arguments about hostile environments based upon words. And then you get your panties in a bunch and are incapable of criticizing. I'm not talking about punishing, right? I'm just talking about like criticizing people who say things like gas the Jews or 
support uh, or say they're exhilarated and delighted when they see uh, paragliders go in and slaughter children in their beds. Um, and your response to that is full of euphemism and both sidesism and sort of denial of agency of any kind. Um, it makes it feel to me like they were never actually serious about their stated reasons for why they were doing that stuff. And it was really much more a matter of dominance. If I can make you say birthing person oh, yeah. instead of mother, yeah. then I am, I'm proving my authority over you. Yes. And that's it. And, and so it all of a sudden it makes a lot of that project, which I always gave them more of a benefit of the doubt of just being silly and misguided to really think of it as kind of sinister, because if you can't see the, the violence inherited in the system, to, you know, to quote Monty Python, um, when you're talking about people saying, uh, you know, the only good Jew is a dead Jew on Cornell discussion platforms, if that's causing you, you know, Jesuitical uh, panic about different splitting and angels on a head of a pin, but you are 100% all in and forcing people to use pronoun stuff or get rid of, you can no longer call use use a phrase like master bedroom yeah. because of the f terror that the word master supposedly, in, you know, evokes in some people. Um, it just makes it seem much more of an Orwellian totalitarian project to me yeah. than I was treating it as for the last few years. Yeah. No, I, I, I think, um, I mean, the only good thing I would say that I think came out of the last couple of weeks with regard to higher education is there might be su sufficient anger and disgust to consider the kind of large scale reforms that probably need to happen and consider some of the alternative um, uh, the, the institutions. Um, you know, University of Texas at Austin, you know, um, is trying to set up a proper liberal arts college that actually has viewpoint diversity that actually allows freedom of speech that actually gets out of some of the issues that create such problems like the residences won't be that will, will be privately, you know, managed in a different mm -hmm. way. Because residence life has become kind of, uh, in a lot of ways, like the the priests of the of, of the new religion, um, and yeah, I I I, well, I was even kind of surprised, and I've been doing this twenty two years about how unreflectively vicious um, the, the the view that um, the Palestinians are always right are is on some campuses, and I knew that 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 had kind of become a dogma in many circles, certainly being out in California. The amount of anti-Semitism I see when I go to, um, and, and, and to be clear, anti-Semitism I mm -hmm. see when I go to California, not just anti-Zionism, um, always blows me away. Um, and also relating to the book, I mean, people should understand that cancel culture, you know, the, this, this stifling environment is one of the reasons why, because a lot of these presidents are very pro-Israel. Mm -hmm. the, um, they are, and, and surely we're completely disgusted by Hamas. And so when donors come in, there, I think the AUP, you know, um, came out with something condemning. You, you should cut all ties to donors who are demanding statements from presidents. And I'm like, yeah, if they're demanding statements from presidents that presidents don't believe, that's one thing. But what they're saying is, you coward. You are too afraid of your most radical students, administrators, and faculties to say what you really think on a disgusting, monstrous attack. This is insane. So in, in this case, uh, you know, the, the well, one, the cowardice of university presidents in this case really shown through. Um, and two, just the environment is so hostile that even university presidents, 
to be fair, have some reason to be freaked out um, mm-hmm. if, if you take the wrong side on, on a holy issue like this. And even for the students themselves, I, I have a pretty minimal sympathy for, for students who actually uh, immediate reaction was, um, this is all Israel's fault. Well, the, mm-hmm. you know, the murder and, and raping is still going on. Right. Um, that I don't have a, a great deal of sympathy for them. But they almost certainly grew up in an environment where it's Israel's fault was always the right answer. And that mm-hmm. was something that was inculcated to a large degree uh, by adults. And one of the reasons why they could really get the impression that kind of everybody agrees with that is people were too scared of getting canceled to even argue with them. So, so they got a false sense of the popularity like of, of this belief. But does this leave me thinking higher education, uh, particularly elite higher education, can be saved? You know, I, I, I question it. I, I think that I, I talk a lot about, you know, like if we had some insanely difficult exam you could take to show that you, you know, read every single book in a, in a, um, in, in a humanities curriculum before everything went social justice fundamentalist, that that would be a better way to figure out you're getting the best, brightest, hardest working person. Because right now at Harvard, um, I, and, and Jonah, this kills me, after writing Coddling the American Mind, um, Employer after employer came to me in height and said, oh, yeah, no, like we're having big problems with the new mm-hmm. graduates, particularly from the elite schools. They show up. And even though we're a nonprofit that helps people, apparently we're the oppressor. And right. we have to close down work for tiny little tiffs that are interpersonal conflicts that usually are like, I don't want to have to work with that person I slightly disagree with. Mm-hmm. And we're not hiring from Ivy's anymore. And I always finish it with do me a favor tell the world that yeah um because that actually might be the slap in the face that some of these these institutions need and the answer is almost always no we 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 won't say that but what what you're getting right now and i and i pick on harvard a lot because again they earned their dead last position on our on on the fire uh campus uh, free speech rankings the average. Also, if you're going to talk, if you're going to talk smack about baseball, you talk about the Yankees a lot, right? You you pick the one that everyone, they're emblematic of the entire elite thing, you know. Even though there may be, you know, the, you could do the same thing with Yale, but Harvard works as a good. Yeah. You're going to pick an example, right? Yeah. Well, we have a whole chapter on on, on Yale in the book because um, we we saw so many bad cases at Yale. Next one, you know, we should probably have a whole chapter on Harvard, although Harvard makes numerous appearances. Uh, Stanford, my alma mater. You know, but, um, doesn't exactly uh, cover itself in glory in, in the book as well. But what you end up with is 45% of the white students at Harvard are either kids or professors, uh, legacy admissions, or sports. Um, you know, uh, Stanford at least is Pac-10. Um, anyway, uh, the, um, and the average grade, the average grade point average, average grade point average, and I just can't, I can't go over this, is a 3.8. Um, that's, you know, a summa or magnum cum laude, depending on how you, um, how you judge that. So what, what is the product you're getting from Harvard now? You're getting someone who could have just skated in, you know, because they're a third generation legacy to, and a major donor's kid. They might have been happy to get their 3.6. Um, and so you might be getting a kid who's not nearly as smart as someone who went to a big state school. Um, who didn't learn all that much because they didn't have to. I, I can attest that, you know, at Stanford, it's almost impossible to fail out. Um, the uh, And you're also probably getting someone who might show up and say, you know that um, uh, that IT guy you have who uh, is, is brilliant and slightly aspy? He occasionally sounds mm-hmm. kind of conservative. So maybe you should get rid of him too. And by the way, 
I don't just want, um, uh, it's not just my opinion that the Palestinians are always the good guys in these fights. I think this needs to be the entire corporate opinion. I think we need to come out with a statement saying um, the Palestinians are entirely right. So I think there's lots of reasons to not hire from elite colleges um, for a long time coming. And I think that, that, that if that actually becomes the norm, that's when real reform becomes possible. Yeah, no, I, that's the other part. I'm glad you brought that up, too, because that's the other part when I was pressing you on the why it matters stuff is that yeah. the kids coming out like I, we've talked about this before. Kylie American Mind is great on this, you know. Uh, political correctness, depending on how you define it, has yeah. been around for a century, you know, in some ways. You know, uh, shibboleth formation is inherent to all elite ca castes, right? Yeah. It's something that they do in group, out group. Here's the language that shows you're part of us, whether it's the yeah. language of the French, you know, the, of the court or whatever, right? So, like, it's a very old phenomenon and it's a very human phenomenon. Yeah. What's different is that on college campuses, the PC stuff or woke stuff or whatever, um, there have been professors like that forever. What's different are students, right? And then this is, gets from the, the coddling American mind stuff is the, is you raise kids with hyper safetyism. You raise kids that are taught that if they're in a challenging intellectual environment, that somehow it's the environment that's wrong. And, um, and that anything that makes you feel unsafe is therefore illegitimate or dangerous. Um, you're going to get the, that's what the, that, those are the kinds of students that the crazy left wing social engineering professors have been waiting for because they tell them, see, here are all these facts about history that make you uncomfortable. That's why you shouldn't learn them anymore. And then they spill out of these sort of production lines into real America. And I got to say, as so I'm now I'm, I'm, I'm Gen X, right? I'm, I'm a, a co-owner of a company. I know lots of people. We talk with Genex is the last good generation as far as I'm concerned. And um, uh, I think we're the only great generation. Possible. Very possible. Um, and the so many of the controversies that everyone gets their, you know, their dresses over their heads about uh, in, 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 you know, what's going on in the New York Times and people getting fired for this and getting fired for that. Or, you know, why did someone cover this story that way? You go and talk to the people who are like in management and they'll say, yeah, it's, it's the young people. It's the, like the Gen X people, Gen X management, Gen X and boomer management of a lot of major media organizations, a lot of major companies in general, they're terrified of their younger staffer. Yes. And that's a direct result of the environment that you're talking about. 100%. Uh, and, I, and I hear this from um, the heads of, uh, because, because of books like Coddling and because of the horrifying situations we've seen on campuses for a while, you know, people are starting to get that fire really is genuinely nonpartisan and that we defend everybody's freedom of speech, but there is something specially wrong in higher education. Mm -hmm. um, and we definitely have, you know, heads of major liberal foundations reaching out to us. And I get told in confidence that they are afraid of their younger employees. Yeah. Um, and it's like, okay, well, probably should have admitted that to me because I'm not exactly, you know, that, that, that doesn't make you look really good. Um, but I, I hear this all the time that they're, they are scared of their younger employees being so um, uh, so rigid. Um, yeah. and that's one of the reasons why people compare this to something that behaves a lot more like a religion than just a simple point of view. So, um, this gets to, um, something I teased earlier is that I'm a committed both sides, right? Mm -hmm. And so it makes, it makes all my fans on the left and right 
furious at me because <laughs> the, 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 I shouldn't say all of them. There are some in the clustered around the sort of center um, who understand liberalism properly understood that uh, there are problems on, there are, there are, there are problems on both sides of the ideological divide and they just, oh, yeah. but the problem is they manifest themselves differently. Yes. I think it's an entirely fair statement to say that if the right broadly defined these days had the kind of monopolistic control over higher ed, we'd probably still be seeing cancel culture. It would just manifest itself in a different way over different issues, perhaps. Um, or at least you would, you would not lose business dealing with academic free speech issues. They would just be on different topics. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and so when I tell people it's, I'm a both sides or, but it's asymmetrical. Yeah. The, le the left has control of the commanding heights of the culture in Hollywood, in, yep. in higher ed, in journalism, um, and a few other places. Um, and so the way we're going to talk about the problem there is going to be different than the way we talk about the problem on the right. right. We haven't talked very much about the problem on the right. So in your mind, um, and in your book, what is, what are the, what are the biggest threats to free speech, academic freedom, or free speech generally um, coming from a rightward direction? Yeah, I, okay. So I, sometimes, you know, I argue with people who only care about the threat from the right. And, and I do lots of, you know, whenever I, I just did the David Pakman show and it, and no matter what I said, it's like, oh, but the real threat's from the right. And it's like, right. okay, sorry, um, that's not actually what our data shows in terms of um, pr proportionality. So, uh, but I think that if you, for people who really want to focus on the right, they, I should point out that of those thousand professors punished, one third of them are initially targeted by the right. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, Turning Point USA, Fox News, et cetera. And sometimes those professors said some, th th those are cases where some of those professors did say some, you know, pretty horrible things. There are also cases like Ashin Fanzi, who, um, who Fox News wrote up like he'd actually been uh, consulting with the Ayatollah to advise him on where to attack in the United States. <laughs> and it actually was a tweet of him saying, um, hey, Ayatollah Khomeini, someone the professor obviously knows is long dead. Um, here are cultural sites he could attack in the United States. Uh, the Kardashian residence, um, uh, the, the <laughs> Mall of America, basically making a joke that we don't have cultural centers, but like a, kind of a cute, lame joke. Um, and this got treated on the right as if he was literally advising uh, Khomeini. And he lost his job. And this mm -hmm. was right at 2020, uh, I think, Babson College in, in Massachusetts. So there are truly bad and highly sympathetic examples of people being counseled from the right. There is a caveat there, though, by the way, is given how w wildly disproportionate the, um, uh, the management of higher ed is today, that usually, even though the pressure will come from off campus, the people actually doing the firing are all often themselves on the left. Um, mm -hmm. So it doesn't completely wash the, the hands. I make the argument that if everybody on the left was still awesome on free speech, none of this would be possible. Um, mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that that's long since passed. Uh, when it comes to, we have th three chapters on censorship from the right. We actually have a whole chapter that's primarily, you know, about people going after the media, particularly Trump going after journalists. I don't think you, we actually mentioned even in your case um, in, in that, but we, we, we give a list of, of, of journalists that um, Trump has gone after. <laughs> uh, we talk about what state legislatures have done. Um, and, and the most concerning state legislature by far um, is the Florida legislature. Uh, you know, they've suggested things like um, uh, reconsidering the, the, the defamation standard, 
in uh, New York Times v. Sullivan, which I just think like, do you honestly think that will work out well for conservatives? Because you haven't really thought this through, if, 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 you, if that's what you think. And there has been attacks on the curriculum in higher ed. Now, of course, when you get to K through 12 curriculum, that's an entirely different topic, because the state actually does have power over um, K through 12 curriculum. And, and you can say that you hate what different uh, red states have decided the curriculum should be in K through 12. Um, but you, you have to remember that's always been a political battle about what mm -hmm. get, what's get taught. So, um, but in higher ed, uh, one of the things that, get, that, get, that gets used to say that this isn't a problem on the left, it's just the right because legislatures are more powerful, it, are these attacks on curriculum in higher ed. But one thing, there's been one attack on curriculum in, in higher ed. That's the Stop Woke Act in Florida. Mm -hmm. Fire in the ACLU challenged it because it's laughably unconstitutional, and we defeated it. There's now a Stop Woke 2 that will be challenging again, and I think it's equally as unconstitutional will challenge it again. So I'd say that a lot of the threats coming out of legislatures um, is the main problem. I'd say that some of the problem um, is within the world of uh, cable, you know, cable news and right-wing journalism. Um, and th those are the primary areas to be concerned about. But also, like I said, the, the, the attack on professors that comes from off-campus um, uh, from, from right-wing groups are, are the main places to focus. But we do want to be clear here. We call this out and firefights this stuff all the time. But... There is no solving this problem, none, without the left taking some amount of stock of itself and saying, mm -hmm. we've lost our minds. Like, like the, 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 the liberals need to take on the progressives is, is usually the way, uh, the, the way yeah. or just disown them. Um, because so many of the bad ideas, uh, dysfunctional ideas, that also is, by the way, going to mean that they probably will find their future candidates completely unelectable, you know, are coming from, uh, coming from their side. And meanwhile, you know, David writes about the idea that the sides have to fix themselves um, and that making the point that the right has to deal with its, you know, MAGA wing. Just circling back to something you said earlier about presidents making statements about things. I am generally against all of these institutions, yes. and not, not just higher ed. Uh, but like I, I found, was it George Floyd? Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter moment to be pretty creepy in the sense that I, I'm one of those guys who like Kramer and Seinfeld. I, I do not want to be made to wear the pin, right? <laughs> and um, I can't do that either. And and but just, do you support it? Yes, I do. Why aren't you wearing the pin? Because you're telling me to. Right, right. And it's like, and every storefront had to put up a some kind of BLM thing. Every company had to make a BLM statement. Um, and I'm not saying that the statements were necessarily wrong, you know, or anything like that. I think the BLM, the actual BLM foundation is not immune to the charge of grifter. Um, but that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. Um, uh, but the, the general sentiment of sort of uh, acknowledging that we have a problem with police violence against African-Americans and, and, and all that, that's fine. Even if you, we can have arguments about the statistics and all that, that's a perfectly fine sentiment. And it's fine to say it if you believe it, but the enforced conformity of it got so crazy. And my problem is, is that one of the downside, the, the, the downstream effects of this stuff is that when you force institutions to issue sweeping statements about specific events that have nothing to do with their mission, the next time there's an event and you don't give a statement of any kind or you give a really bad statement, 
people yes. can make inferences from it, right? And so, like, I don't think college yeah. presidents should be saying much about any of these kinds of things that don't affect their campus communities in some significant way. But if you're going to be in the business of doing that, and you say, well, you yeah. know, but the Israel thing's complicated, you know, people, you know, like donors are allowed to say, well, wait a second, you like, you, you, lend, oh, you yeah. lend all the way in on this, but you have to be circumspect and like stay in your lane for that. That is a statement in and of itself. And I think it's fair for comment. Oh, I, I, I actually completely agree because if fire thinks the Calvin report, which is the 1967 statement from university of Chicago, that the university itself is not the, is not the speaker. It's the forum mm -hmm. for speakers um, that it's the, it's the professors and students who, who, who they should be uh, focusing on and, and not be this, you know, not be the decider itself. So we like that, but I've written, a very well, probably the most cynical piece I've ever I've ever actually written because I try to be an optimist even though sometimes I feel like that's uh, not rational to be an optimist on some stuff at this point um, about yeah um, even though we like the Calvin report and we hope that uh, schools will adopt it adopting it now because you're too cowardly to actually say the same kind of thing about a horrifying attack on civilians children elderly etc um, because you're afraid of your own employees uh, and, and your own students uh, is something absolutely worth calling out. So uh, I think one of the paths forward that someone suggested, it's like, listen, it is con uh, contemptible to comment on all these other things and not comment on this one. Comment on this one, then Calvin, see, let's see if you can stick with it. Um, and I wrote, you know, uh, we so at, at FIRE, we have to be, we can't actually just say, Oh, you're committing to free speech and political neutrality now. Um, you know, uh, the we, we don't like that. We we have to say, you know, oh, no, we we hope you really mean it this time. But there's nothing stopping us from saying this seems incredibly cynical, and mm -hmm. my money is on you stay with us for about three weeks. Yeah. Um, and it's and because th this is something actually that, that, that um I, I realized I forget sometimes when you're in a field for such a long time, you kind of assume everybody knows the way it works. Mm -hmm. This is really predictable. Um, when it's perceived as the threat to academic freedom and free speech comes from outside the campus, uh, campuses circle the wagons, um, they scream academic freedom and free speech, sometimes they'll, they'll uh, mention McCarthyism, um, and they suddenly discover free speech when the threat is from outside. And by the way, that includes their own donors that they see mm -hmm. as a threat from outside. Um, uh, but when the threat comes from inside, when it's students, you know, marching on the president's office, when it's uh, faculty, um, uh, you know, angry about something, and particularly administrators, they cave all the time. And and of course, they, and then they explain how differently this, this issue is, this issue is actually hitting them. I hold out some tiny bit of hope that maybe at least for some of these schools, they're gonna, that they've been slapped in the face hard enough, they're gonna be like, you know what, actually, political neutrality as far as, you know, or institutional restraint, whatever you want to call it. Um, it is the new norm, and we really are going to not just defend free speech, but teach it. Um, I have some, I have a little tiny itty bitty bit of hope for uh, Stanford, partially because Jenny Martinez, the former dean of the law school, did a really good job standing up for political neutrality and academic freedom earlier this year, before, mm -hmm. before October 7th. Um, and maybe th th this is a change, because they actually, for that, they promoted her to provost. So that's a good sign, too. Mm -hmm. I'm still skeptical that even they can pull it. And when it comes to places like, you know, Yale and Harvard, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And by the way, it will take years of good behavior. And I'm, and I have a feeling you're going to blow this in like 15 minutes. All right. Just because I have you here and you just 
you know this stuff. Riddle me this. Um, yeah. I know we're going over time, but uh, just one last thing. So I was the, I was a young trustee of my, my uh, college's uh, board. And it was an interesting learning experience. And, um, uh, and I know now, thanks to the high pollutant circles I travel in, I've gotten to know quite a few people on, on boards of very prestigious schools. Mine was not a particularly prestigious school. And, um, and the thing that I find sort of sociologically kind of fascinating is, and maybe there's a selection bias problem that I have here, so I'm not getting the right picture. But for the most part, a huge number of the people on these boards, there may be Democrats, there may be Republicans, you know, that kind of thing. There may be moderate liberals, moderate, but they would never run their own businesses the way they allow these universities to be run. And I, I mean, on sort of almost anything except maybe endowment management, because a lot of these schools are essentially um, huge hedge funds that run classes on the side. But like, there seems to be this kind of thing that's like, it, there's that scene in, in Wall Street where Michael Douglas is explaining that, you know, the ultimate Veblen good is to be on the board of the, the, the Central Park Zoo, right? Or the Bronx Zoo, it's right? It's just like this feather in your cap. I get to say I'm on the board of Princeton. I get to say I'm on the board of Harvard or whatever. But the boards actually do not seem to exert much control over these universities. And so whenever I talk to people, whenever I meet people at donor this or whatever that, and I talked to them about, yeah, we talk about this a lot on the board and they make it sound like if only we had power and like, what is, is it in fact that, that college presidents actually have a lot of allies or the administrators have a lot of allies on these boards and they're just not the ones I happen to meet because they're the ones who come from, you know, places that I wouldn't run into. I mean, like, I, but I don't know, I don't get it. Because even like the left wing DC lawyers I knew on the board when I served, they would never, you know, defer so much to what, uh, what essentially an employee was telling them the way they do. It's like the second you have tweed elbow, tweed jackets with elbow patches, you can't say anything wrong to these people. And, I, and it's, it's just sort of fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, one thing that has been incredibly uh, frustrating and bizarre is how many powerful people I talk to, you know, like I mentioned, heads of foundations, former deans of law schools, former presidents of universities, and get told that they actually have no power um, and that they're, you know, a victim of their institutions being out of control and there's not a lot they can do about it. And I'm like, okay, surely someone has some power somewhere in this chain. Um, and if not, someone needs to actually figure out what's going wrong and, and fix that. Um, but I also think I, I, I hear a, a lot of cowardice in that, to be honest, like, like I, I do actually think a lot of people are, are thinking they don't have power, but it's like, no, no, you're saying that it would be too difficult and, and socially painful, which, by the way, is part of cancel culture to exert any power, because, you know, this is a constituency that knows tactically when to, and strategically when to freak out um, and particularly freak out early and often if it's a change you don't like. So I, I, I tend to think that some of this is a little bit BS. Um, I do think a lot of schools have um, figured out ways to make their board of directors matter less. Um, and that was one of the reasons why they, they try to have a tight control on who gets to be their bosses, which is, which is messed up. But it's, it's one of the things that makes this higher education problem so difficult to fix. 
Um, and, you know, again, kind of like my, my hope here is that a lot of these students who are like, wow, my university has become incredibly anti-Semitic. I'm like, go, go to some of these new experimental schools, go to some of these other places, because I'm not really sure um, higher ed, particularly elite higher ed, will have any interest in fixing a damn thing unless the consequences are severe and particularly to their reputation, because you can't starve them of money. They have, they have infinite money. Um, they don't think they have infinite money, but a lot of them essentially do. Um, you know, as, as uh, Malcolm Gladwell says, Princeton's almost become a perpetual motion machine in terms of um, how much money it has. And I'd say Harvard probably already is. But I do think that we do have a moment in front of us where we could rightfully demand some real change. But if we take the university word for it that, oh, we're fixing it, and don't stop donating to them, don't yank our kids out, they're just going to keep on behaving like the massive, super rich mega corporations that get to decide who your ruling class um, is, who they actually are at the moment. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> Greg Luganov, thanks again for coming on. The book is The Canceling of the American Mind with your co-author, Ricky Schlott. Um, it's it's great stuff. Um, I just started it um, recently, but I love Coddling the American Mind and um, highly recommend all of it to everybody. Thank you, Jonah. Okay, so uh, Greg Lukianov has left the studio. Um, I could have talked to him for about a while longer about a bunch of other things. Um, he's got a good podcast voice, I got to say. Um, and uh, I'm sure there are many announcements I probably should be making. I can't think of them all. But one I can think of is that the SCIF, this sort of members-only podcast feed with members-only content, um, not the jackets. I'm sorry, I'm dating myself. Um, is up and running. And as I threatened, basically all uh, AMAs for the remnant are now going to be in there. And so we're going to do one uh, in the next week or so. I haven't figured out the exact timing yet, but we want to do them, you know, at either at the end or the beginning of every month. And um, so if you've got questions, send them to uh, the remnant at the dispatch.com or remnant at dis at the dispatch.com. We set up emails going both ways in case I couldn't remember. Um, I'm sort of like Joe Biden to the younger staff. They just try to make it easier so that when I have various uh, facing moments, um, there's no downside to it. So uh, the remnant at the dispatch.com or remnant at the dispatch.com. Uh, send your questions, comments, concerns. No, just send your questions and questions that are well suited for an AMA, um, which uh, in case you didn't remember, stands for ask me anything. Um, and uh, beyond that, uh, thanks to Chris Darwald for subbing for me again. And thank you all for putting up with my where in the world is Jonah Goldberg travels. And um, uh, please become a paid subscriber to The Dispatch. That's about it. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. 
Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more. Only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply. Not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon.